episode of the Brush Builders Union podcast. I'm your host and general president of the Brush Builders Union, Simon Berman. This month, I am joined by the one and only Mike Tunez of Blood and Plunder, Firelock Games. Mike, thanks so much for joining me. You get some exciting stuff to talk about today. And Simon, thanks a lot for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, you know, I've wanted to talk to you for ages, actually, and the timing just turned out to be really good. Um, you know, I've been seeing Blood and Plunder is, of course, the historical pirate miniatures game. Maybe, maybe you have a more better way of describing that than I'm saying. Uh, no, I think you pretty much nailed it. Okay. <laughs> uh, you've got one of the coolest convention booths out there. Every time I see you guys at Gen Con, I have to stop oh, by and thanks. pick up something or other because it's just so rad. Actually, you know, uh, we had our trailer stolen from here uh, last year. And a big oh, part man. of that booth got stolen with it. It was in there. Oh, no. Crazy. The the That water table that we take to all the conventions was in there as well, which also got stolen. Oh, that sucks. It does. It does suck a lot. So we've replaced parts of it already, but... Uh, Turned it turned out it didn't end up being a huge problem, at least for this year, since we haven't had sure. any conventions to go to. So, yeah, <laughs> it's been a bit of a different convention season, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah. But it's, you know, th- th- those beautiful tables you 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 guys have built are they're they're so eye catching. It was one of the things that drew me to the game in the first place. Yeah, thank you. Uh, those were built by oh, I always forget the name, but it's a uh, but it's Chris Strecker and uh, a guy who goes by the Bug King on um, on all his terrain building videos and stuff. Check them out. They make really, really cool stuff. Oh, cool. I mean, we'll throw a link into that. But, you know, um, before we talk too much about all the specific stuff, we're here to talk about uh, your new Kickstarter, which is launching the day this podcast is going to air. And uh, right. I'm, I've been stoked about it for months. I know it's had some delays, but it's finally here. And uh, what do you want to What can you tell us about it? So this has been, oh, man, we've been talking about this Kickstarter probably for like the last two years. Um, and a big difficulty has just been getting somebody that we can partner with to get it done the way we wanted to with the level of quality we wanted to. So this Kickstarter does two big things for the game of Blood and Plunder. One, it moves the timeline forward. So Blood and Plunder <clears throat> is a historical game that takes place in, in the Americas starting in the 17th century. But uh, we treat it like you know you would any, any uh, sort of fiction universe, right? That's, that's kind of how we present the game. So as sure. we, we, we put you in a place as a player, and then we take you through the time as we go. So now the fir- we're moving the timeline forward again in a big way for the first time <clears throat> we moved it forward a little bit in the previous kickstarter we did for blood and thunder but this time we're going to a whole new century so we're going to the 18th century which brings about a whole bunch of cool stuff right which we'll get into as we talk i'm sure and then um the second big thing is that this is the first uh time that we'll be doing hard plastic model kits so everything in the kickstarter will either be print material or hard plastics including the ships which is a pretty cool Thing. I think it's the first time somebody's done a, a war gaming, a ship made specifically for gaming in, in hard plastic. Yeah, I, I am so stoked for those ships. You know, um, Blood and Plunder's a game I've kind of been circling for a few years ago. For a few years, you know, I, I had some English stuff. I finally painted it up this spring. Uh, cool. And, you know, I was, I was looking, I'm like, oh, I gotta, I gotta buy a boat, but do I want to deal with all that resin? And then, then I asked, <laughs> you heard you guys talking about, um, and th- those resin kits are really nice. I have a friend of mine in my gaming club has three or four of them, and they're really cool. I just I just have a fear of big resin kits, personally. Yeah. Um, Ours are actually pretty, but, they're pretty, they're pretty, I, I had the same fear. I wasn't excited about doing resin, but I'm happy with how they came out. Thankfully. They're pretty durable. They're easy to work with. And there's no, there's no real assembly aside from the wooden parts. So yeah, it makes it easy. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, a buddy of mine, uh, there's, there's a local gaming convention for historicals in the Northwest called uh, Enfilade. And mm-hmm. a couple of years back, a friend of mine, uh, I watched him playing in a, a big five or six person 
Blood and Plunder game, which was my first exposure to the game actually being played. And, you know, I think the, the person running the games, they're all GM'd events at this convention, had, right. I think, maybe seven or eight ships fully painted up and loaded out on this, this really cool table. And it was it was just so fun watching the ships run around and move around and maneuver. And it, it, felt, like it, it felt like all the best parts of naval games without any of the really... I'm gonna say I'm just gonna say dull parts that you sometimes get in naval games. It was really <laughs> exciting and engaging. Um, cool, well, thank those you. Those chips are so awesome. Yeah, we actually have we actually did an all naval game too called Oak and Iron. That's out right now. That's how we actually just got a big restock on it. That's something I I should definitely bring up because uh, we we've been so busy with the Kickstarter that we haven't been able to use our resources to push the fact that that game is back in stock now. But that's oh, uh, that's cool. We yeah, added I the same. That too. Yeah, we added the same uh, the same kind of mentality. Because you're right. A lot of times, a lot of naval games you put on the table and you sail ships around for an hour before you even fire a shot of any significance, right? So Right, or uh, you're doing trigonometry at the same time. Exactly. So for Oak and Iron, just to jump in there with it real quick, we did a, we did a card sort of system so that that, that part is kind of handled pre-game. And then you start the game basically in broadside range, ready to go. That's great. So, well, back to Blood and Thunder. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um... But yeah, the, the, so, you know, moving to hard plastics really, really got me excited. You know, I, and, um, you know, I, I painted up a set of your, uh, I think the, the English militia box set, that's English starter. Right. Um, and a few other things along it. And they were, they're actually, I think they're really great quality single piece metal miniatures. And Thank part you. of me really likes those because there's, you know, the assembly is pretty easy. Um, but you know, I, I think the detail you can get in hard plastic is always going to be better. And I, I, the stuff you've been showing off as far as previews for the Kickstarter stuff is really cool. Thank you. Yeah, and um, I'm pretty happy with our medals. So I've always been, I've always had mixed feeling about medals myself. I liked metal models, but I don't like building them. It's always the worst to try to glue metal together, right? Yeah. Uh, so I said, well, we could do if we do metal. I have they have to be single piece models. So uh, we've done. Um, I think we've been able to pull off some pretty cool sculpts, considering that. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty happy with how it's turned out. And metal is something we're going to keep doing, of course. You know, we want to be, we want to give people variety. A lot of people really sure. like metals and like prefer that. So uh, we'll be doing a lot more plastics and a lot more metals as we go forward. Very cool. Um, so, you know, I should talk about maybe some of the, the, the challenges of moving from a, a metal miniatures line to at least a partially a hard plastic one. I, I know from experience how much work goes into that, but uh, I think maybe <laughs> the average person is unaware of just how... It, it, all, all, all consuming it can be to make that move for your sculptors, your production line, everything. You know, what was that journey like for you guys? Yeah, so that's been, that's been, as I said, two years in the making to get to this point. Uh, so, so now we're at the point where we can finally, we just need to start, uh, you know, fronting the money for all those very expensive molds, which that to me is the scariest and trickiest part, right? Like, because once, once you cast from, uh, once you cast a model to make into the steel molds to make the the plastic figures right there's no really there's not really any tweaking that whereas with metal you know making replacing a mold is not the end of the world we just sure. do another 3d print and then cast another one it costs a few hundred bucks but you know that's not a it's it's, it's not a crazy investment right like we can right. fix we've and we have we've actually gone back and corrected some models changed small things to help the detail be better in the cast or in the print or whatever right so that's something we've already done um so we've taken a lot of those lessons and tried to put them into this, but it's still scary going forward because you know if there's an if there's an issue, if there's a small thing you miss or needs to change, that it's forever. It's stuck. Yeah, you're just gonna live with it, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. So that's so we've had a, we've spent a lot of time finding the right partner uh, to get this done with, and uh, I feel really confident with the people we've chosen, and we are we've been doing a lot of work, and we we're we're pretty much almost ready to go. 
again so just got to get the funding in place and then start cranking out some molds but it's uh it's it has been quite a challenge that just there's the sheer amount of engineering and it's like okay well this part should fit here but now it doesn't fit there oh man it's just it's 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 a lot of work <laughs> you, you you may have experienced something i did when I, when I was working um at privateer press which is you know i went in as a hobbyist and you know i always right. wonder like why are these hard plastic kits and stuff or why are even the metal kits why are they in so many pieces why did this piece need to be cut separate so what, what fool yeah. did this and then you get into the mold making especially with hard plastic like oh that's why that guy's tiny pipe is a separate piece did you did you have that experience as well oh yeah 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 so for sure and then a lot of it too is you got to think about the way it's going to come together where there's going to be a, an obvious separation in parts and stuff like that so we tried to do uh, and you know i'm trying to make this kit I'm, I'm i'm a bit of a perfectionist so it's driving me crazy in a lot of ways so i tried to do little things like to make the parts more interchangeable we did a thing where we're cut most of the parts are cut at the wrist and the wrist goes into a sleeve oh so that's that way cool. it's a little more natural and you could do more swapping of weapons yeah and things, bits like that so um so that was something we came up with that uh that that worked out really well um but little things like that uh, are, are just so much different from the plastics and then trying to make the same models look like different models, making sure they're different. Cause that's, that's the one thing you're always going to get from plastic. That's a, very difficult to get from metals is model variety, right? Sure. Without having to do a ton of models, you get the same gener uh, the same basic torso and just make it work for a bunch of different things. Right. So, yeah. So yeah, here's a question for you. So, you know, one of the, one of the things I've encountered with historical gaming in general is that when you, when you, when you aren't designing for fantasy armies, mm -hmm. um, there can be a certain amount of, of, of homogeneity between figures, right? Because, you know, in the 18th right. century, everybody kind of dressed the same to a certain degree. Um, you know, right. even, even the standing armies didn't necessarily have uniforms in the way we think of them now. Exactly. Uh, so, you know, how, how did you go about envisioning your, your factions for the game as far as having visual identities? You know, what, what makes an English pirate different from a French pirate? Great question. So there are some differences between nationality. And because of the generic nature of the kits we have now, there won't be, you know, they won't be, uh, we won't be hitting every single detail. But uh, one of the things is like just mustaches, for example, right? Like just yeah. a different type of mustache from one, from one national. Yeah. Like French and Spanish, you'll see lots of guys with big twirly mustaches, right? Even sure. Whereas uh, a lot of English and Dutch tend to be more clean shaven. Um, so... There's little things like that. The, the the headgear was a significant one. There's just like, you know, French, against French and Spanish tended to wear more like a stocking cap type of, hat, type of hats. Dutch, English tend to wear more wide brim. You see some tricorns and stuff like that mm -hmm. in between all of them. So there's little there's little details we could throw in there. Uh, for the soldier kits that we're doing, the, like the uniform troops, which are even more of the same, right? Uh, right. It's like the, you know, we're gonna, there's little tiny bits we're going to have in there, like cockades for the hat, which is like little bows. Um, there's little shoulder ribbons and things like that. Just little little details that'll make them stand out. And in historicals, they tend to be more uh, they they tend to be less significant than others. Sure. Uh, but we try to find as many little details as we could throw in there to differentiate them. And then a lot of the differentiation comes in the game itself. We try to make sure that there's a distinct flavor difference between all the units and factions, uh, you know, for the represented from the different nationalities. No, that's cool. So you, so when you were doing that kind of game design on it, you know, mm -hmm. what were the things that, you know, you were like, I want an English uh, buccaneer for, or actually an English buccaneer, but, you know, an English uh, ship's crew, how should they right, fight yeah. English buccaneer is an actual faction, so that's a good one. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm smarter than I think I am. But um, so, you know, what, what differentiates them in gameplay from, you know, a, 
between English Buccaneers and uh, I don't know, um, you know, a, yeah. a French crew. Yeah. So French. So they're, they're, we actually have French and English Buccaneers. Those were the two main types of Buccaneers, right? As far as factions go. So those are two that are in the game right now for the 17th century. So uh, we just kind of read accounts and there's, there's a lot of reading and a lot of research and history involved, right? And then we just try to get all of that. And it's no different really from the way you would approach it in a fantasy or science fiction game. If you're building something off of fluff, right? The difference is our fluff is just history. So sure. we take the same exact approach. So the English were known for being a little more kind of, um, you can get the general feel that they're, they're a little more resilient. They're a little, they're a little more, they're able to take a little more punishment and stay in the fight. So they're, they're a little, you know, they may not be as impulsive and as, and as rash as like the French. So those things are, are then put into, into stats that will reward the player for kind of playing them that way. Sure. So the French are good. The French are in general a little better at shooting. They have some. They have. They they hit harder on a on an attack in melee, but not, don't necessarily take the hit back as well, right? Whereas the English don't hit as hard initially as the French, but they're able to weather the fighting a little bit more, right? So there's just little little details like that that'll stand out, and those are represented in stats and special rules and different things. And then each faction, of course, has its own special special rules to add to that, as well as commanders and everything else. So. Really, in Blood and Plunder, the amount of... Like, I think in, in our No Peace Beyond the Line book, I believe the number is we have 64 different factions. Oh, wow. Each with their own set of special rules, their own list of commanders that are unique to them. And, and then, unit, uh, you know, different options of unit variety and what's your core unit, what's your support unit and such. So there is... Uh, I think it's probably got... I, I, would, I, would be, I would be so bold as to say it's probably the historical game with the greatest amount of variety that you will find out there. No, it sounds like that. That's a tremendous amount of factions. Um, <laughs> and there's more so, <laughs> Oh, yeah? Yeah, of course, because in the 18th century, we're going to... There's updated versions of the ones from the 17th century, and then, of course, a bunch of new ones. Like the, the We have, an, we have a, a, the, the Pirates faction, which is... A, we have a Pirates faction already, but now there's a uh, different, like a more Golden Age Pirates faction, if you will, the kind of guys... That include the kind of guys that you would... Uh, that are a little more popular in popular culture, like Blackbeard and Anne Bonnie and Mary Reed and Jack Rackham and Black Bart Roberts and all those guys. Yeah, that's cool. So the uh, the new the Kickstarter you're doing, uh, what is what is the name of the Kickstarter? Let's actually get that out there for people so they can go look it that's up. That's a good, that's a good part, thing. But... Yeah. <laughs> so the Kickstarter is Blood and Plunder Raise the Black, which is the name of the expansion as well that brings all this new cool stuff into the game. That's cool. So it, is the is the Kickstarter for an expansion or is it a standalone product? It's both. So. Um, one of the big things that we're bringing in with this expansion is for the first time, we're going to have a boxed two-player starter set. And that's kind of like the key feature, right? The key feature of the Kickstarter is this two-player starter set. And it's themed around Blackbeard's last, ba last battle with Robert Maynard. So it's a pretty popular battle that if you, you know, any, any person who's kind of looked up Pirates is probably familiar with it. Um, so it's, and it's, I think, the only actual battle that we have Blackbeard on record of fighting. Right. But, um, which is which is cool. So we actually have that battle. So in the in the box, you'll get two plastics, you'll get two plastic ships, uh, two crews, figures for um, Blackbeard and Maynard. You'll get the rule book, the dice, the cards, tokens, a paper play mat, some punchboard terrain. You know, a ruler. Everything you need to get started with the game is in the box. So it's a pretty complete experience, which is pretty cool. That's really cool. What, what's the yeah. uh, what's the Kickstarter buy-in for that? So the buy-in for that um, is. I want to say 120 right now. Oh, wow. That's I think it's price. 119 for the for the core set. 
Um, obviously, wow. there's if you're already a Blood and Plunder player and you're not necessarily interested in the two-player starter set for, even though you're, it's a great value. <laughs> so you, a I think a lot of people will probably buy into it. Yeah, but uh, that I think for I think it starts out at fifty-five for the book and the expansion deck of unit cards for the expansion sure. book and the unit cards. I believe, yeah. But you're, you're getting. But you'll see now you're... as you as people are listening, they'll be able to go click and check if I'm right. So yeah, go take a look. <laughs> we'll we'll have it linked in the show notes here for sure. Um, yeah. But just to clarify, did you say you're getting two plastic ships for the hundred and nineteen dollar uh, pledge? That's right. That's two full size twenty eight millimeter scale plastic ships. Wow, what kind of ships are they? Uh, they are sloops. They can be built as either uh, balandra, which is like a just a Spanish word for sloop, and that's kind of just a uh, a more basic sloop. And then you have a Bermuda sloop. Which is which can be built up as basically the faster, uh, sleeker sort of traditional pirate sloop. Oh man, that's really cool. That's a, <laughs> how big are these boats? So with the 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 whole alone, I believe is about ten inches long, about three and a half inches wide. With when you add the all the rigging and stuff, they're they're about they're probably about fourteen, fifteen inches. No, probably more like sixteen because the bow oh, wow. the bow can get pretty long. It's almost as long sure. as the ship. So. <laughs> Wow, that's crazy. But yes, and they're big, and they, they come with all the rigging. The only thing they don't have right as of right now is sails. Um, we are still constantly on the hunt for a really good, affordable option for being able to include sails. So if that pops up, it'll be included as some kind of a, a goal, a stretch goal, or, or just an add-on in general, or uh, maybe something in the in the kits if we're lucky enough. But uh, we're always on the lookout for that. So if anybody has any great ideas, feel free to send them over. But all right, <laughs> uh, yeah, I was actually thinking about having them. Um... My, my my girlfriend is a screen printer, and I was considering having her screen print me some sales when the time comes. There you go, yeah. A great um, option, but not necessarily an affordable one. <laughs> no, not not on the big scale, probably not. No. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that's that's really cool. So yeah, as far as the models that come in, I assume Blackbeard will be included? Yes, yeah, so you have Blackbeard. You have a Blackbeard commander figure, which is and a Maynard commander figure, both of which will be exclusive to that box. In addition to that, to add to that too, we'll have a box of um, of ten famous pirates, and it's just all hard plastic models. You got ten models in the box, and um, you know all of the big famous pirates are in there that everybody's heard about. Oh wow! Which is, which is I think something that especially people who are into more painting and collecting than playing will be especially attracted to. Yeah, it's gonna be a fun little display set if nothing else, right? Yeah. So with a with what you get in a starter set plus that, I mean, you've got a lot of really, really cool stuff to build and paint. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, so, you know, when you're when you're figuring out your, how you're going to paint your pirates or your your buccaneers or corsairs or what have you, you know, what what are some references you go to for that? For as far as um, historical reference or even just you know pop culture. Yeah, we typically go f- uh, with paintings and uh, and and just with eyewitness images of of the time. A lot of times, uh, as we so in the period we were in before in the 17th century, it's very difficult to find anything, right? Like we've got a couple of illustrations that are of like kind of the artwork of ships, and you'll see a sailor in there or two, and you get an idea sure. of the colors. Um, of course, those have faded over time, so it's it's hard to tell exactly what colors they would have really been. But um, but most of we get it from accounts. Like I I remember one of the things I read where they talked about how they were. Uh, they were, they were, I think it was one of Henry Morgan's uh, attacks on South America somewhere. And they were talking about being just in their white shirts. So there you go. We, have, we know they mostly all in white shirts. <laughs> so sure. little things like that, we'll pick up clues and we'll note them down as we research just stuff for the game. And 
Uh, and, and then sometimes we just have to guess. We just have to base, on, base it off of uh, what you see in other uh, popular images of the time and try to just figure it out. As the timeline moves forward, we get better and better uh, recorded stuff. So there's a lot mm -hmm. more detail and it's a lot easier to do. Like in the 18th, early 18th century, there's a lot of information on uniforms for regular soldiers. So we yeah. remember, that's pretty easy to find, thankfully. It's going to make our lives a lot easier. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, historical stuff. I mean, part of the joy of it is, you know, doing your own research as well. But it's, it's, it's there's, there's so much to figure out. And, if, you know, um, if your concern is being being true to the history, it can certainly be some work. Um, yeah. Have you guys ever considered like publishing like a, like a bibliography or anything? Um, we haven't. We probably should. I mean, we people ask me all the time. I just give them a pretty good list. Some good ones to read are... Um, our Buccaneers of America, that's a pretty classic one. That's uh, a guy who sailed with Henry Morgan and a few other famous Buccaneers. He uh, basically writes down all his accounts, so you get that. Anything written by William Dampier, He's, uh, he was kind of like uh, a Buccaneer intellectual, if you will. He, was, uh, he would write down about, like, getting through his stuff could be a little tedious because he spends, you know, hundreds and hundreds of words describing, like, a leaf or a plant <laughs> so uh but but with a lot of the stuff he does talk about is fascinating and there's a lot of really cool interesting stuff in there um there's a few others that are pretty easy to get like uh as far as direct there's the, of course the famous one going into the the stuff we're doing now in the 18th century there's a general history of the pirates which is basically tabloid of the day right like mm -hmm. it's like the national Enquirer version of uh, <laughs> a period book right so it kind of exaggerates and and embellishes a lot of things, but it's still a pretty good read because it's written. It was written pretty much right at the end of the golden age of piracy, and uh, and it was a big inspiration to a lot of things like Treasure Island and stuff like that. Yeah, pretty good, pretty interesting thing to look at. Yeah, I, I've been doing my own my own pirate research because not to, to shamelessly plug, but I've, I've got my own Kickstarter going up the same day as this one for a set of historical pirate flag uh, enamel pins. So I've, I've been I've been buried in pirate research. But I, I came back to one of my favorite books on the subject, which is sort of a broad overview called uh, "Under the Black Flag," which I shamelessly stole for the title of my Kickstarter. Right. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you've read it, but it's it's a really good sort of quick, three hundred fifty yes. page layman's overview. Uh, David Cordingly is the author. I'm looking at it on my desk right now. Yeah, um, that's a that's a it's a great it's a great book. It's a uh, Cordingly is one of the is one of the one of the real pirate experts for sure. Yeah, and I, I found that, you know, and I've been I've been going back and reading things. So I'm like, well, I'm going to do my pirates for Blood and Plunder, so I should probably re-familiarize myself with, uh, with, the, with all that material anyway. Um, but I found that to be such a great resource. Yeah. I'll go ahead um, and plug our, our, our go-to historian, Benerson Little, real quick. He's, uh, if you get your hands on any of his books, they're all very excellent, especially um, especially the Sea Rover's Practice. If you're, if you're a gamer, Sea Rover's Practice is great. Um, if you want to get a bunch of pirate myths that you maybe learned debunked, you can check out the Golden Age of Piracy. <laughs> so that's a good one. Too. Yeah. But he's done. He's a. Uh, he's a uh, my he's our go-to guy, and he's excellent. Has helped with our projects tremendously. So check his check his work out. Benderson Little. Oh, that's cool. I also like um, Marcus Redeker's uh, Villains of All Nations. Have you read that one? I have not read that one. No. It's really good. It's 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 a little more of a social look at piracy, um, but it's 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 worth reading. It's got some pretty interesting stuff to say. Cool. Um, but I, I won't. I won't go on about books for so much. But actually, here, here's a, here's a question for you. Sure. What got you excited enough about pirates in the first place to go to all the trouble and blood, sweat, and tears that go into making a gigantic miniatures game about them? Oh well, that's that's many years in the making there. So, uh, since since a very very young age, of course, I've been fascinated with pirates. Um, 
I I would that was the first thing I wanted to be when I grew up was a pirate. So I realized that it wasn't a practical career <clears throat> pretty early on though. So that dash that those dreams. So uh, you know, having always had a fascination on and off as I, as I got older, obviously, I lost a little bit of that unfortunately in like around my high school years. You know, I still kept an interest, but I didn't really pursue anything in it. Uh, but when I right around the my college years got back into like the Pirates of the Caribbean movies actually sparked we sparked the interest for me, and um, so those uh, you know me being me I, I I started wanting to read books and learn more and I learning more and more about the history of, of real piracy made it interesting and then um, I took a trip one year to Saint Augustine here in Florida which if you've never been and you're interested in this history you should definitely check it out the history there is amazing. Uh, oldest uh, oldest Spanish town in North America, or oldest um, European type town in North America. So that's pretty cool. But so I went there, and they had, you know, they have the fort, they have the pirate museum. They've got, they've, yeah. got, they've actually got two forts, and the whole town is just like the, you know, little old part of town is all just deeply immersed in the history, and it just kind of sparked my imagination and just sent me spiraling. And then at the time, I had been playing a game called uh, Legends of the High Seas. Which is uh, which was done by Warhammer Historicals, which is now out of out of business, unfortunately. And uh, they had and that game was pretty cool. It was uh, it's basically the Lord of the Rings skirmish game system, um, but and then the Mordheim campaign kind of all mashed up together and with some uh-huh. saving rules added in. So that game got me, you know, that I had never considered pirates for wargaming until that point. And then I was like, that's kind of cool. So when that game kind of died and it, as, as a result died in my local shop, we had a couple people playing the campaign. Um, you know, I was sad because I had, a, I, I was enjoying that very much. So I just, uh, I just decided to take a crack. That trip to St. Augustine made me say, Hey, why don't I just take a shot at making my own rules? And yeah. my little started, you know, I messed with it on and off for a few years, never really took it seriously until one day I kind of hit a point where the game was pretty close to what it is now. And uh, and I thought, I thought, man, this is actually, I'm actually really happy with how this, this is. And I started playing with people and one thing led to another. And then my, I showed the game to my now business partner, Alex Aguila. And uh, we talked about starting a company and doing a Kickstarter. And then here we are. <laughs> That's cool. That's and the story how- when did Blood and Plunder first come out? It's been a few years now, hasn't it? 2016, I believe it was. Yeah, I think. Well, yeah. at least that was our Kickstarter. I think. Yeah, I think we. I think we were. were I think we first started selling, uh, and delivered the Kickstarter. Well, we delivered the Kickstarter the very first, like the last few days of 2016. I think we did our first deliveries and then started selling the game in January of 2017. That's cool. Um, what what is what has kind of been the the, the that that adventure been like for you? you know, for having gone from you know just the Kickstarter now having a big convention booth and you know, now you're on your, your third Kickstarters is the one launching. This will be our third blood and plunder Kickstarter, our fourth Kickstarter overall. We, we did a Kickstarter for Oak and Iron. Oak and Iron, of course. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, wow. It's, it's been, uh, it's been a pretty wild ride. We, I mean, when we started blood and plunder and I, I've said this in a few places, but you know, when we started firelock games, rather, um, me and my partner literally sat down on a computer and Googled how to make miniatures. I mean, <laughs> No industry experience whatsoever, aside from just being a couple guys who were into gaming, right? Uh, and we have learned tons and tons of things <laughs> as we've gone. We've made plenty of mistakes along the way, uh, usually usually stressful, costly ones. 
but, uh-huh. uh, but you know, four years in, we've learned a lot. We we understand the industry a lot better. Uh, we know we know what it takes to to. I mean, I think we've always had a good idea of what it takes to make a good quality game. But now we know how to. Now I think we know how to do that and uh, also stay in business. So that's that's, a, the trick, that's a good combination. <laughs> yeah. Um. So you know what when you were when you were first sort of um, visualizing and doing um, the current one. You know, what, were, what were your goals for it besides, you know, you, you knew you wanted hard plastic and, I guess, uh, Blackbeard, but, you know, what, what, what's the general idea behind it? Is you're moving into the, the 18th century as, as a product line, what do you see it doing for Blood and Blunder? Right. So the biggest, the big thing was I have, since since day one, I have always wanted a, just an easy buy-in for people to get into the game, right? And that's, a, you needed a two-player starter set's always the best way to do that. Absolutely. And we, and we were able to, you know, we did that with Oak and Iron. With Oak and Iron, we did it to an even higher degree in that the ships are don't require any real assembly. Like, you plug the mass into the hole and that's it. You, sure. know, you don't even need glue. So, um, so Oak and Iron kind of made me want the same thing for Blood and Plunder even more. And I said, we can, we just need a, a really accessible way to get people into the game that's also affordable, right? Uh, so, because if you bought all that stuff on its own, you're like, you're looking at probably 200 220 bucks more or less worth sure. of stuff just you know so we're basically giving it for less than half that so um that's that was the primary objective really and plastics was the necessary tool to get there you know you, you just can't do that kind of thing with metal and resin in a box it's just never yeah, gonna absolutely. you're never gonna hit that price point so no so plastics was pretty critical for that uh we also just need and we also wanted to do it um on kickstarter because really <clears throat> doing our own when we've done so the first two blood and plumbing kickstarters that we did were done we're, were manufactured internally right so we we have spin casting equipment and resin casting equipment and we made them here you know we did everything except printing here sure. uh, and then packaged it all and shipped it all from here as well so that was uh unfortunately the first time that made sense right because we were a new company we didn't have an actual product other than that so just putting all of our energy and focus into that made complete sense. Sure. The second time around, it just totally, I mean, it was, uh, that was, it just almost wrecked everything we were doing because we couldn't do, couldn't do anything in between. So while we were making the product, we could not make other products. <laughs> so we were constantly struggling right. to just turn around stuff, fulfill distributor orders. And, 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 you know, obviously because we had put everything available in that, uh, there was not a lot of people just buying stuff. We were basically, so we burned through all the money and it was, um, it was kind of a disastrous project for us, despite the fact that everything came out great. So we were, at least that part was good. <laughs> so, so we made it through that. Yeah. And then, so <laughs> that's a big part of the reason doing plastics. So plastics, we don't do in-house. We do that externally. So um, anything in the Kickstarter going forward in the future will prop from us will probably be some kind of plastic product because it lets us focus here on creating metal and resin and designing stuff without the added uh, stress and work of actually making everything here right we just put that off to a different factory and get it done so that was a big part of moving blood and plunder into plastics for the kickstarter and creating a two-player starter that was pretty much the idea uh, because you know we were eventually going to move to 18th century and do all that stuff but um, that's the direction we took with it so when you're <clears throat> designing these plastic kits um what do you what do you see as sort of like the the the, the hobby potential for them you know you were mentioned before that you know they're they're, they're sort of uh, interchangeable to a certain degree but you know how how much can you do as far as kit bashing between the yeah, kits you have that, that's always a high level of importance for me whenever i'm buying plastics like i love being able to just get parts of different kits and mash them together right so 
the soldiers will be the one that's kind of on its own. It does, it's not as compatible with the other kits as others, but even within their own kits, right? I mean, and it's sure. not that you can't. Obviously, there's still plenty of options in the fort, but um, <clears throat> excuse me. The, um, within the kits themselves, so the kits are going to be 12 models in each kit, right? And out of those 12 models, you have just a tremendous number of options. So we have different... Obviously, you can all the sailors, which is the the main box you're getting in the starters, and that I think will be probably one of the most popular boxes in the whole Kickstarter, even as we stretch go more. Um, you get so you have your sailors, and you can they have a whole bunch of different heads, right? You've got choices for African heads, you've got French, you got Spanish, you've got some more generic ones that'll work for different things. So you've got all kinds of head choices to swap them out and give them a lot, you know, just kind of make the character you want. You have plenty of weapon choices. They could be armed with uh, boarding pikes. They could be armed with muskets. They could be given blunderbusses, uh, explosives, pistols, cutlasses, boarding axes. And then within the pistols and the cutlasses, we also have like some nationality varieties for different types. So we'll have a Spanish style. We have some uh -huh. Spanish style pistols in there, some Spanish style cutlasses, uh, some English style, some French style, you know, a little bit of, a little bit of all those different things so that you can, and you can mix and match them to any, you know, to your heart's content, of course, because people stole stuff from each other all the time, especially right. the pirates. But if right. you wanted to do like a Spanish Navy, a set of Spanish Navy sailors, for example, you probably want them mostly with Spanish cutlasses and pistols. So that option is all sure. is all in there. So you can build them mostly that way. So, and then when the, the kit, the first stretch goal kit that we have is the militia. We haven't actually started designing that one. That's why it's going to be a stretch goal. Um, so... That uh -huh. one is going to basis is going to be very interchangeable with the sailor one since they're basically just two different versions of civilians more or less, right? Um, and there'll also be some uh, swappability with the with the soldier set in that one to kind of make a, if you want to make you guys look a little bit more like provincials, which is kind of like you know regular soldiers uh, under the employ mm -hmm. of various colonies. So you've got some of those choices as well. So there's going to be a lot of interchangeability that I think people will be pretty happy with. Yeah, that sounds great. So actually, you mentioned stretch goals. So what can you tell us about what you have planned for the Kickstarter if it's as big a success as I think it's going to be? I hope so. So stretch goals primarily, so we're doing we're doing something a little different as uh, people will see as they go into the Kickstarter. We have two things. We have stretch goals and then we have a loot box, right? Or I think we're calling it a plunder box. I don't remember what we're calling it. Some, one of the two. I think it's a plunder uh -huh. box. So um, the, and with that, the plunder box is every week or... I forget if it's. I'm sorry. I'm I'm just all over the place with this thing. <laughs> but it's uh, it's every so often <laughs> we're gonna update that plunder box based on certain things that we're doing, whether how you know whether we've hit certain levels of funding or whether people or we've accomplished certain things on social media we wanted to do something like that. That'll add uh -huh. to the plunder box, and the plunder box is you know at certain pledge levels you'll you'll receive a plunder box, and then. By the end of the Kickstarter, that's just going to end up having a whole bunch of cool extra stuff in it. Uh, I think one of the first things, and I could be wrong because we keep changing our minds, is I think one of the first things is a an ex, a different sculpt for Blackbeard that'll be included for everybody, and again in plastic. So uh, there's going to be a lot of cool stuff in that. Now for actual like big stretch goals, uh, since these molds are all really expensive to do for us in, in a variety mm -hmm. of ways, and time wise, money wise, and just everything. Um, there's, there's probably going to be a lot of space between stretch, these stretch goals, but the stretch goals are primarily sure. all going to be um, just ex extra plastic units. We have a whole list of units and ships and different things like that that we want to do in plastic eventually. 
And uh, it's just a matter of how soon. So, right. So if, if the Kickstarter does really well and we can, and we, and we hit those certain points, we'll add in, you know, we'll add in uh, like the first one's the militia. Like I talked about a militia, uh, European militia box. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the one after that will likely be a native American set of sprues. Uh, then it'll be cavalry, I believe, you know, those aren't set in stone, but oh, wow. different things like that. And sure. then um, if things go really, really well, Another ship is possible, but unlikely, just because the amount of work. I mean, trust me, the, the ships are way more work than <laughs> the other, and they take multiple oh, screws to accomplish. So they're 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 quite pricey to get to get going, and you gotta. It takes a yeah. lot of work to get them right. So, I mean, I, I, the, the price you have on the starter is really blowing my mind. Just imagine what those two ships yeah, alone yeah. must cost. And that, I mean, we've been working on those ships for well over a year now. Uh, so it's been, I originally actually wanted to do more options in the ship, but then like, so you could do different types of ships out of the same hole. But I realized pretty quickly that that was a kind of a, kind of an overly ambitious, uh, desire because it, it's just, just to get where we were, it's, just, it's taking so much work and it's taking so many yeah. sprues that it's, uh, it would just become like, it was the, we we're going to make the ship a little, a little costlier than it is now and, and have all these things, but really it's. It would just slow the project down too much. So the plan is, we just want to turn this thing around Makes as fast sense. as possible and do what we know we can handle. And we're, and thankfully we've we've gone around the block enough times now to know exactly what that entails. So, sure. You know, speaking of, of ships, you know, I think um, the ship combat is probably the, the one of the most exciting parts of the game. But it's it's not purely right. a naval game, is it? You can you can correct. You can yeah, and the that, uh, right. in the starter set, the, the all the punch out two D terrain and the mat will all be reversible. So one side's land, one side's water. So you can do both right away. Oh, cool. But yeah, the game is... So that was a, that was the big, big challenge when we were designing the game. That was the thing that took a long time to really get right. Uh, the game is fully amphibious, if you will, right? So you can you can have a ship and you can get off of your ship and go on shore and vice versa. And the ship is really just another piece of terrain... Or not terrain, I'm sorry. Uh, the, just another unit in the game, right? Like, you'd, like mm-hmm. you treat it almost like if it was a, a tank in any other game. But... At the same time, there's a lot more to it than that because it's also capable of carrying your entire army in it. <laughs> so, uh, sure. so what we what, the activation system in Blood and Plunder, which anybody who's played Blood and Plunder will know, it's uh, is part of what makes the ship fighting so interesting, even if it's just one piece. Now, all your units are in there, so you're man, you're still managing the activation. The way you activate your units with the hand of cards you dealt in the game and stuff like that is an important mm-hmm. part of. Of, of the strategy the ships also move multiple times throughout the turn so you have three opportunities to move your ship throughout each turn which makes it constantly flowing and moving and as your ships are moving units are activating they're firing guns they're reloading they're shooting their muskets they're trying to grapple they're fighting fires putting you know plugging leaks repairing rigging changing sail settings there's a lot going on to keep it interesting and exciting but it's all really easily managed it sounds like a lot but it's actually really simple but you definitely feel the stress of those things as you if you feel like you're commanding the ship and you're just trying yeah. to keep everything under control. So it's pretty exciting. Right, like the, the tides and weather and stuff comes into effect too, doesn't it? Yes, it does, yeah. So the, the wind change, the wind direction can change. You can get rain, which messes up all of your uh, black powder weapons, of course. Um, you can get rough seas. You can get all kinds of different effects that will... And those are, again, handled by the deck of cards. You, and event cards pop out and that'll that'll trigger those things coming up. But you could then, of course, jump right off of your ship and go ashore. So the way the, and the way we do that, we basically treat ships 
with the same rules as buildings in the game, right? So the way you move models around inside of a ship would be the same way you move models around inside of a building. Sure. And they follow all the same rules. The difference, of course, is that ships can move. So that's the uh, that's that's the that's what makes the whole system kind of work as well as it does in that way. Yeah, you know, I that uh, that big campaign game, or sorry, that big convention game I watched a couple of years ago. My friend was playing and. Um, I was really impressed by, you know, the fact, you know, the, the, the guy GMing it obviously really knew the game well, but he had, I think, probably six basically brand new players for the game uh, with a ton of boats. I mean, there were there were a lot of boats in there. Sh- I should say ships. <laughs> uh, a lot of ships in the game. You know, and there, there was a small island with um, a cannon emplacement on it. And right. it's, it's I, I went and watched. I was like, oh, man, I bet this is going to be a drag because there's so much to do and these people don't know what they're doing. But I, I was shocked at, you know how well that deck of cards um, kept everything moving and really seemed yeah. very intuitive to me. Um, and it, it really spoke volumes for how good the game is and that, you know, a game that could potentially be that complicated for new players, especially was able to move flawlessly. Everybody was super engaged and it, it really, it was very cinematic. Right. Thank you. Yeah. That's, uh, that's something that's always kind of even surprised me. I'm, I'm like, man, this is like, we've, we've put the game in front of people who've never played a, a miniatures game at all before. And they just pick it right up, which is always great. And uh, I mean, we've done convention games with 12 players with and without ships, you know, even more. I think we've done like 16. Oh, wow. Even uh, we, we definitely did a bigger one than that at Adepticon. Actually, we had two gigantic, I think we had, I want to say we had 16 ships and like 20 players. Or just wow. Had ships. Something crazy like that. I don't remember. It feels like a lot, but it was. I could be exaggerating in my mind, but it was a lot. I know that for sure. Yeah. And it was, uh, <laughs> and uh, a lot of them are first time players. And, you know, we keep the units. The the trick with that, also, we'll keep the units the same. So everybody, it's just all sailors and we just arm them a little differently. That way, everybody only has one set of stats to remember. Sure. But other than that, we don't really do anything to simplify the game. We just give them the full thing and we just kind of guide them along. And the crazy thing is how fast they wrap up, too. Typically, uh, most of our convention games, including setup and breakdown, are done in three hours, more or less. Sometimes oh, wow. four if they go long. I you know so, and that's we've even done uh, the game just moves quickly. It's one of the one of the things that I'm, I'm most happy with how it came out is that it's not too fast. It's not like games are over in twenty minutes, you know. Sure. But you know we're able to actually do. We've done full tournaments with up to uh, twenty two players in a regular like five hour turn uh, uh you know convention block you know wow. and typically we're done before that so we've done a full three round tournament in that time frame that's crazy you know so it's and it's one of the great things because if you know you're going to a convention especially especially at a convention you don't want to just sit there the whole weekend playing one game you know yeah. you want to try a bunch of other stuff so being able to do that in one session is always really good no, it's cool. I, I think you've really managed to avoid one of the, the pitfalls you often see with historical. And I think one of the reasons a lot of people who you know might be interested in historical games stay away from them is that they can be you know a little tedious sometimes. You know, I, I've oh, actually yeah. played you know Napoleonic games that have taken you know six to eight hours. Yes, um, Napoleonic games are the worst culprits of all when it comes to it's, historical. It's true. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I think a lot of people sometimes they, they they see a game set before you know the 20th century or not in a fantasy world, and they like, oh, I don't know if I want to get into this and. You know, I, I think you've really dodged that. But also, I want to say, you know, I think the, the, the community around Blood and Plunder has been so um, inclusive and, and welcoming to people. You know, there isn't a lot of that button counting you see in some of the historical games, is there? Yeah. And in, in our case, you really can't button count because, you know, there's nothing to go right. on. <laughs> a lot of times. Or you can start to get a little button counties on the ships. But uh, people pretty much understand, too, that in some cases, like our ships are often, very often, certain things are left off or slightly exaggerated 
for the sake of playability, right? Like, sure. You can't have a, a chip's deck cluttered with stuff and expect to play a game on it. You know? Right. So it's just impractical. But now that said, one of the cool things about plastic is you know, our ships are going to have a bunch of cool little bits that you could add in there, like like capstans, like, to, you know, like a little winch type of thing. Yeah. <clears throat> Pumps and rudders and, and tillers and anchors and you know, all those details so you can really fill in really fill the ship in with stuff especially for those who maybe aren't necessarily as interested in playing the game but like to do some or maybe want to use them for rpgs or or just for for dioramas and stuff yeah. so we throwing all those options in there so we talked a little bit about stretch goals and stuff but you know where you're moving the timeline forward into the the proper golden age of piracy um so like you know what, what kind of characters and, and infamous pirates are we going to see out of that besides blackbeard and who we've already talked about my favorite there's there's going to be quite a few i'll i'll list off the top of my head so uh i should i always i need to prepare a list it's hard to remember these 10 names because we have more than 10 that i've designed i just we have 10 figures we have 10 models (laughs) so let's see we have uh black bart roberts we have um charles vane we have jack rackham we have black sam bellamy we have Anne bonnie and mary reed um we've got uh olivier labouz we've got amaro pargo uh and um we've got black caesar and um, I'm only missing one here. Someone else, but okay. that's the majority. <laughs> They're on the Kickstarter page. You yeah, go look at the Kickstarter. <laughs> so, but my oh, Steve Bonnet. I left off Steve Bonnet, who's my oh, favorite. Cool. I was going to bring him He's up. He's my favorite too, actually. Yes, I'm actually very excited that he. There might be a show about him very soon. Yeah, I HBO. love Steve Bonnet. I love Steve Bonnet because Steve Bonnet is, uh, is you know your average armchair general, right? Like if some. If one of us wargaming nerds was to just get up from our chair one day and be like, "I'm gonna be a pirate in real life," it would pretty much go like his life went, you know. <laughs> yeah, he's such a wild character. He was an aristocrat who kind of gave it all up to go be a pirate. Yeah, he just got bored of his life, bought a pirate ship, hired a crew, and said, "Let's go be pirates." And uh, you know, one of the first things he did was try to fight a Spanish warship and nearly lost his life and <laughs> lost the life of many of his crew and stumbled into Nassau and became Blackbeard's uh, buddy. <laughs> and Blackbeard was like, you crazy guy. Here, yeah. come with me. I'll keep you safe. <laughs> you don't yes. go and fight the Navy if you're a pirate. That's not right. you, you avoid them at all costs. <laughs> yeah. Um, so do you, do you plan to keep the game purely historical or relatively historical, I should say, um, or do you, do you ever see yourself going in any of like the more fanciful takes on pirates, like in Pirates of the Caribbean, that kind of, um, you know, semi-fantasy element to it? So we will, the game will always be historical. Um, that said, we definitely always, we always throw, we know a lot of our players could care less whether we're historical or not. So we always throw a bone every Halloween or April Fool's Day or something out there. But we uh, we do plan at some point, probably in the future, to do a version of the game that is a little more fantastical. Uh, we haven't always we haven't completely decided in what direction we want to go. Whether that be uh, you know all out fantasy with elks, I mean uh, elves and orcs and all that, or just more Pirates of the Caribbean esque, or even more just kind of in a historical uh, legends kind of base, right? With like mm-hmm. uh, with like witches and myths and sea monsters and stuff like that. So you know. But it's something that we've that we've floated around over here. We, you'll, it will probably be something we do in the future. That's cool. That's definitely something to look forward to. Uh, so, as far as the Kickstarter goes, back to that. What, what is your funding goal? So we, as of right now, we haven't totally nailed it down. But uh, 
it's it's just a matter of it's going to be right around a hundred thousand. Okay, I know that because that's it's just a matter of um, of just getting those last minute details all together, double checking all of our math and making sure it's what we need. We're trying to get it as low as possible, but realistically, if if you, as you well know, if you've worked on making plastic molds, it is very expensive, especially when you're going through. Uh, we we've got a team we're working with that they just do really good work. We didn't want to go cheap on the people we went with. Yeah, absolutely. so we went on the people who we thought were the best. So I'd rather do less stuff and have it be higher quality, and then sure. just release it slower, you know, and have more stuff. So that that's that's the approach we're taking is the high quality approach that everything fits together the way it should, and everything looks really sharp, and the de- no details left off, and there's no weird choices in the way things are cut up. So, uh, but it should be right around there. No, I think I think you're going to crush that for sure. I think there's already been so much so much excitement and hype around it, but I, I can't wait to. Thanks. I hope so. On one yeah. one great one great thing that's going to help us that I'm really encouraged by is Kickstarter finally added add-on options. I so saw that. We're going to be one of the first Kickstarters uh, that that to have that. So that's awesome. Uh, that's going to help tremendously because I know a lot of people get confused by that and they just kind of do yeah. their minimum and then you know and then that's why we we well we see it in the back end you know but it does help. What's great about it is that it does help us get to where we need to add more stretch goals. So that'll help us do so much more. So that's really encouraging that we're going to be able to see that now reflected in the project instead of after the project, which, yeah. you know, it's always good. It's good to get it either way, but it's just so much better because we can do more with it. You know, I really like, I remember for Oak and Iron, we had quite a big um, late pledge surge on stuff. People just adding stuff. Right. And I was like, man, we could have done, you know, with, with the amount of stuff we added, we could have done a lot more. And yeah. I wish this would have came in during the Kickstarter. Sure. We been able to do more, but, you know, it is it is what it is. So. No, it's very, very cool. And so when do you expect to be delivering? So we expect to be delivering in about a year from now. Okay. Uh, all things, I mean, obviously, we always try to shoot for faster. And uh, we've learned at this point to give ourselves more time than we think we need. Sure. So, uh, we've got, I mean, at this point, most of the development is done for everything that's going to be launched. Uh, so at launch, you're going to see the sailors, which are pretty much put together. There might be some small tweaks as we get feedback, as everybody sees everything. We always leave a little room for that. But uh, the soldiers need their, their alternate options. And um, the ships just need a couple small tweaks. So we're, we're pretty much all set. The, all, the, all the units and factions are all, that's always really what takes us a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And that is all design. It's just a matter now of playtesting it. So it's just going to be going back and tweaking it. All, the, all of our writing is done. You know, that stuff's all put together. So thankfully, the book can be able to turn around quickly. So we're hoping to just get it out as soon as possible. That's really one of our biggest focuses, to turn this project around as fast as possible and get it in people's hands because it's been a long time coming. And I know a lot of people have been itching for it. So we, don't, we, don't, we want to make sure we get it out with uh, faster as fast as we can. So we're, we're, we're leaning towards faster, higher quality instead of more stuff this time. I think that's a really, really laudable goal. And I think, I'm sure you're going to do it great. Um, you know, you, this is not by far from your first rodeo, right? Yeah. Um, I, thankfully so. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. And you know, obviously, you know, the world is in a kind of a strange place right now. So who knows what kind of delays might occur that are outside of your control, but you know, I, yeah, I think that's well prepared that's, for it. And that's why we're giving ourselves a year. We turning it around in a year is typically within the realm of reason. So no matter what, even if things go poorly, you know. So right on. So you know, I, I was actually I was planning to close this out by asking who your favorite pirate was, uh, but we already. Oh, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> we, uh, but I, I'm so happy you said it was Steve Bonnet because he's my favorite too. Um, yeah, awesome. But 
again, you know, I just want to say thanks so much for talking to me. Um, I'm really excited to see all of your stuff on Kickstarter um, and get it in my own hands. I'm, I can't wait to play out Blackbeard's final stand myself with some plastic chefs. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I'm definitely going to be picking up some of those really cool flags you've got going on too. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah. So yeah, if, just to plug my own stuff, I got my own Kickstarter going up for uh, under the black flag, historical, quasi-historical pirate flags. Uh, we talked about this a little bit. You know, I, I did a lot of research on that. You know, nobody, they're, they're pretty, they're probably pretty fictional, although there are a few accounts of some of them, but um, yes, it's kind of some fun. Of them. Like, but they're still cool anyway, so. Yeah, and they're iconic, right? You know, and at yeah. this point, they're, they've been around for so long, they're, they're sort of historical, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could say that. that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so check out my Kickstarter, but more importantly, check out Mike's Blood and Plunder. Um, Kickstarter going on right now. Go back and go check it out. And uh, I can't wait to play some pirates. Yeah, awesome, man. So real quick, I'll just plug a few places to find us online. You can obviously go to firelockgames.com. And uh, if you're if you're itching with anticipation, you've backed Kickstarter and you just need more, You we sell plenty of stuff to get you going right now. So Oak and Iron, Blood and Valor, which is a World War One skirmish game, uh, Scurvy Dice, our dice game, and obviously Blood and Plunder is all there. Um, you could also go on, we have, we, we're very active on Facebook. We engage with the community and all kinds of stuff. So you can find us on Facebook. You could also find us some of our fan groups, like, uh, uh, the blood and plunder bucketing across the Spanish main page. That's a huge group has, uh, I think it's got around 5,000 people right now. Maybe and just to interject, there's more. so much cool hobby being posted there. I've been a member of that yes. group for a while and man, there's, there are cool figures being painted and shown off there. Definitely. Yeah. There's, I mean, the, some of the stuff people do blows me away. It's pretty awesome. And it's a really, like you said, it's a great community. We're very fortunate to have a really awesome community of players that's pretty civil with each other and, uh, and just does really cool stuff. And of course you could, we also have groups for Oak and Iron and Blood and Valor. So go check those out on Facebook as well. And, and thanks a lot. I really appreciate you having me on. It's been a good time. Yeah. Let's talk about your next project when the time comes. And I just, I should say everything you just mentioned is going to be linked in the show notes. So if you're listening, you can go, click a button and go check all that stuff out directly. Awesome. Yeah, but Mike, thanks again, man. Great to talk to you. Good luck with the Kickstarter. I'm sure you're going to crush it. Likewise. Thanks, Evan. The Brushbuilders Union is a community of like-minded miniatures gamers dedicated to playing their games fully painted and supporting one another in their craft. Brushbuilders Union is here to help you stay on track with tools and a community of fellow painters to encourage you in your journey. Take the Union Pledge and learn more at brushbuildersunion.com. Mm-hmm.